0: All right, chapter two, uh, maybe even chapter three. It doesn't look like I have a ton of note cards on chapter three. We'll see about the notes, but let's get into chapter two. It starts with achievement motivation theory. Achievement motivation theory. That's Nichols in nineteen ninety eight or nineteen eighty nine. Sorry, uh, and it is the concept that at any point in time, individuals can be either task involved or they can be ego involved. Um, task orientation is a function of cognitive development, goal orientations, motivational climate perceptions, uh, in a caring task involved climate, um, high effort and improvement are a rewarded cooperation among teammates is fostered. Everyone plays an important role on the team. Mistakes are part of learning. Everyone is treated with kindness and respect. So, uh, just off the note cards, task involved, um, Athletes are focused on their personal effort and implement in improvement in the tasks they perform. So it's all about the tasks that are happening. They're attentive to aspects over which they have more control. Ego involved is part of this theory as well. And this is where athletes are focused on how their ability compares to others. That is something that we try and stay away from as much as possible. Now goal orientations um, are Uh, personal definitions of success. It's the lenses through which individuals view the world and find meaning in activities with these perspectives reflecting individuals' core values about what is most important in life. So this is uh, what shows what the athlete really is. Um, So that's achievement motivation theory in a nutshell. It's, It's about are you task-involved or ego-involved? Obviously, we want to try and foster a task-involved uh, climate. Self-determination theory. Uh, self-determination theory is developed to describe why some individuals thrive in life, find activities interesting, seek challenge, and experience joy Why others do not. It assists all those involved in physical activity settings to promote and experience competence autonomy, and relatedness. Those three things are very important when we talk about SCT uh, and, and those three things, of course, being competency, autonomy, and relatedness. Let's get to relatedness real quick. It refers to the need to feel one is connected to and in meaningful relationships with others. How do I relate to the others on my team? Autonomy, is uh, what you might think it is. It refers to the individual's perceptions that they are in a position to control the decisions they make. Uh, do they have ownership over what they are doing specifically? Competence um, refers to an individual's sense that they are able to, able and proficient in certain areas and have potential to improve. Do I know about soccer? Can I get better at soccer? Uh, what do I have the competence? Um, And can I keep improving type idea? Um, Real quick, we'll talk about anxiety real quick. So by the way, that was self-determination theory. Obviously, self-determination theory um, has a motivation continuum, Uh, a motivation, a.k.a. without motivation, external regulation, introjected regulation, identified regulation, integrated regulation, and intrinsic motivation. Um, That's a continuum Uh, Obviously, a motivation being no motivation at all, intrinsic is what we're trying to work towards, so it's all on a scale there. All right, we'll go on to anxiety. Anxiety is an unpleasant emotional state or condition that includes a physiological response along with tension, worry, and apprehension. I think you're pretty well versed on uh, anxiety, Fred. But let's talk about state anxiety. State anxiety is provisional changes in feelings of nervousness, apprehension, and worry. So, state anxiety is something that um, I'm I'm feeling it change uh, right now. Like I, oh snap, I'm I'm anxious now. Right now, I I'm in an anxious state. I can feel that trait anxiety, however. It's going to be a behavioral disposition that predisposes a person to perceive a wide range of objectively non-dangerous circumstances as threatening. Trait anxiety is more a predisposition. It's more something that is already there. Uh, and, and it's causing you to perceive lots of things as anxiety inducing. So trait anxiety is more long-term while state anxiety is what you're feeling in the moment. Now, as far as the notes go, anxiety, uh, Hannon's individualized zones of optional functioning are important when it comes to this, uh, multi dimensional multi-dimensional theory of anxiety, uh, is here. And then the cusp, catastrophe model is what we'll talk about with this. Uh, Low cognitive anxiety, moderate somatic anxiety, high confidence, things like this. Um, We'll just keep, we'll just keep moving on. Okay. Next is going to be this cognitive evaluation theory, cognitive evaluation theory. Um, Now what this is, is athletes who are intrinsically motivated cognitive, due to cognitive evaluation theory. Athletes who are intrinsically motivated, one, perceive that they can continue to develop, to develop their skills and feel competent. Two, they have a sense of control over their lives. And three, they feel connected. What does that sound like? Well, I'll tell you what it sounds like. It sounds like relatedness, competency, and autonomy. It's, it's the same three things, but with cognitive evaluation theory. Attribution theory. Attribution theory uh, is something uh, something else. Um, a- attribution theory is um, attributions reflect how individuals interpret or explain outcomes or behaviors. They have three things. A locus of causality. What caused it? Two, stability. And then three, locus of control. Now that locus of ca- causality is internal or external. Stability is Uh, the likelihood that it might happen again, and then locus of control is whether the athletes feel they have control over the outcome in similar situations. Now, in the notes, this is what it's going to say. Heider, in 1958, attributions reflect how individuals interpret or explain outcomes or behaviors. Um, He argued that that this interpretation is important because it affects future behavior. Um, so those three attributions are, are really the, the big thing. Now there's this thing called learned helplessness at the, at the end of this, uh, these notes. And, and it can occur when an individual perceives a, uh, failure to be because of their personal limitations or lack of ability. They expect similar outcomes in the future, and their inability to achieve success is perceived to reach widely across their life, also linked to depression. Um, really, this learned helplessness is something where the challenge is too great for what the individual is actually capable of, and so they, they keep finding um, – they basically learn that they can never be successful. And we've already talked about self-efficacy, belief that you're able to do something, the belief that you have in yourself. Now, the theory of self-efficacy, though, um, this is interesting. Self-efficacy theory uh, is from Bandura in 1977. High effic- efficacy encourage, encourages approach behaviors, whereas low efficacy or low belief in self elicits avoided behaviors. Um so in other words, uh, it addresses the misconception that psychological changes occur as a con- consequence of experience alone. In other words, if I think I can pass this test, I'm going to go after it. If I don't think I can pass this test, I'm not going to go after it. And that's that's really what this is. Um, the cultivation of facilitative, physiological, and emotional states, encouragement from self or others, and the use of imagery, imaging, or visualization can help with self-efficacy theory. Uh, The more successful practices, moments you have, the higher uh, your self-efficacy would be. Now, next thing I want to talk about is this eyes off. Individual zones of optimal functioning from Hannon in 1995 and 1999. Athletes vary in their responses to state anxiety they have a zone or a range of anxiety as opposed to a single point where they perform their best. This varies from person to person. So if I have, uh, my performance is going to go up as my anxiety increases or goes down. uh, Basically, my optimal functioning may need a little bit of anxiety uh, is what we call it or arousal, if you will. And it's this thing called an inverted U hypothesis where um, as it goes up, my performance increases, and then it gets too high, and so my performance starts to decrease. Now, the eyes off is a little a little different because it's gonna make it even more specific. Low eyes off performers are athletes who perform best while experiencing relatively little anxiety. So your chill people smoke a bowl before. Um, that's a, a good example would be Daniel. Um, now moderate eyes off performers would be like me perform the best with a little bit of anxiety. So a little heightened, uh, arousal level, but not so much that I just can't think high eyes off performers perform best with high anxiety, something like squirrels. Um, this model looks a little different than an, uh, uh, an inverted U per, uh, inverted U hypothesis, just because it is going to be based on the athlete specifically an eyes off profile is built by asking athletes to reflect on whether and how much certain emotional and psycho bio social states help facilitate or hinder their performance using the following four categories. Now those four cali- four categories are pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant and un- oh sorry pleasant functionally optimal emotions and psychobio social states. Uh, that's P positive. Unpleasant, functionally optimal uh, optimal emotions and psychobiosocial states. That's N positive. Pleasant, dysfunctional emotions and psycho-bio- uh, social states. That's P negative. And then unpleasant, dysfunctional emotions and psychobiosocial states. That's N negative. Um Those four categories are part of the Eyes Off model, and it can kind of make this big zone of optimal functioning, which is what obviously we're looking for. Um, And there are pre-competition, and then there are post-competition ideas there as well. Lots going on there. I would definitely highly consider looking at the notes. All right, coming up, multi-dimensional anxiety theory. Honestly, um, multidimensional anxiety theory is cognitive anxiety and somatic anxiety differentially affect performance. Um, Martins and colleagues in 1990 argue that self-confidence also plays a key role in how one is likely to respond to performance stress. Elevations in somatic anxiety will facilitate performance up to an optimal level at which point performance begins to decrease as somatic anxiety continues to rise. Somatic being uh, the, the nervous system, which is what we're going to next. So our it's the perception of physical responses to related anxiety. So uh, the sympathetic nervous system's response to a perceived threat, which includes, but not limited to, increases in heart rate, sweating, and muscular tension. That's somatic anxiety. Now, cognitive anxiety, it it reflects the athlete's negative expectations and concerns about performance and performance-related consequences. It's uh, concerned with thought processes processes such as uh, worry and of fear. That would be cognitive anxiety. Um, And for right now, that's where I'm going to stop and I'll take a little break and be right back with the rest of chapter two and chapter three. And we're back. So we are going to pick, (laughs) pick, we're going to pick this up uh, by going to this thing called facilitative appraisal now what i want to do real quick is i want to um finish the chapter two um the chapter two note cards then we'll go through and pick up anything we missed in the notes so facilitative appraisal now facilitative appraisal is um something that uh you perceive. So when, when an athlete perceives they are able to cope with performance pressure and they're able to achieve their goals in a particular to, in a particular setting. So in other way, in other words, oh my gosh, I can't talk. In other words, this is me looking at something and saying, um, it's facilitating what I have to do, the task that is at hand. Facilitating the task that is at hand, facilitative appraisal. Now, debilitative appraisal is the opposite, right? It's perceived that when athletes perceive they do not have control on whether or not they're able to achieve their goals or cope with performance pressure. Very simple. Just a couple more left here. In chapter two, we'll keep going. Um, reversal theory is uh, when athletes' perceptions or interpretations of their arousal will determine their per, uh, their response or performance. A couple notes on uh, reversal theory: low levels of arousal can be interpreted a- interpretive as uh, boredom, or they can be interpreted as relaxation either or right you could reverse boredom uh, into relaxation high levels could be excitement or anxiety you could reverse that it. Um, it can be switched from maladaptive interpretation to an adaptive one like I just uh, gave the example of Performers can shift their perceptions at any time. That is um, what reversal theory is all about. Now, the theory of attentional style. This theory states that the relationship between arousal and athletes and their attentional focus can better be explained through their dispositional or preferred attentional style. Um, so, a little bit about this one. Let's go into focus uh, on, on our notes. Our notes say, uh, this is Nideffer, 1976, 1976B, and 1981. Attentional focus ranges in width from broad to narrow, and in focus from internal to external. This is your broad, narrow, internal, external focus, resulting in four attentional styles. Broad internal, broad external, narrow internal, and narrow external. Now let's talk about all this stuff. Um, different, um, different sporting experiences call for different attentional styles. The better the match between the style called for in the sporting experience and the dispositional attention style of the a- athlete, the better performance. A broad focus would mean that there is a wide range of stimuli Uh, so like playing defense in a game you have to know in a soccer game you would have to know uh, about a lot of different stimuli going on narrow focus is minimum minimal input or change Um, so shooting a pk the environment uh, around you minimal focus internal focus uh, equals internal thoughts, and external focus uh, would be ex- external to oneself. So the um, opponent position, um, the 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 uh, audience, the uh, the fans, things like that. Now, um, understanding athletes' attentional focus will provide practitioners with info about their attentional strengths and weaknesses, giving them direction on areas that need work. So understand the attentional styles. All right. Um, The theory of planned behavior. As Jen in 1985, um, this means that this uh, theory states that behavior is best predicted by intentions about the behavior. We already kind of talked about this one. But there's three factors, attitudes about the behavior, subjective norms, and perceived control. Remember, we talked about that in chapter one, I believe. And then um, that would be the end of our chapter two um, note cards. But let's go over some things that we missed in the notes that weren't covered in the note cards. Okay, so um, first things first, uh, there are a lot of different theories that we – didn't quite get to talk about. Um, we did talk about achievement motivation theory, obviously. Um, and, and we talked about self-determination. But this one, organismic integration theory. This is Ryan and Desi in 2007, four levels after a motivation one external regulation, individual engages in behavior because of the of outside rewards or punishments that go with it. That is, um, it goes within the self-determination theory uh, framework. By the way, so that would be uh, first external regulation, lack autonomy and self-determination. Number two is introjected reg- regulation, where the individual engages in the activity because of guilt or pride not of their own volition. Number 3 is identified regulation. The individual begins to internalize the behavior, recognize its importance and acknowledge the activity has some value. The number 4 integrated regulation. The individual consciously recognizes the importance of the activity in their lives. However, this is still in extrinsic because the individual is still focused on the outcome of the activity rather than engaging in the activity for pure enjoyment. That's integrated regulation. So once again, those four of organismic integration theory is one, external regulation, two, interjected regulation, three, identified regulation, and number four, integrated regulation. Competency, autonomy, and relatedness all must be met although not necessarily to the same degree in order for individuals to reach their human potential. Okay, going through everything else. We have hit almost everything else, it looks like. Um, The cusp catastrophe model is something I wanted to touch on as well. That's a three-dimensional model of the anxiety performance relationship. It represents the proposed effect on performance of different combinations of cognitive anxiety and physiological uh, arousal. Now, look at the notes for for a picture of this, but basically, uh, there's a critical point of anxiety arousal and performance um, where that critical point is where uh, arousal and performance, they both, the arousal gets too high, so the performance decreases. Um, as it's going on its way up, the performance will increase. Um, and basically, that's what this model is is looking at is is that going up. Now, this is phasey and, Heard in 1988, Hardy, oh, Fazy and Hardy in 1988, Hardy 1996, Hardy and Profit 1999. Another one is the control, of mod, control model of debilitative and facilitative competitive anxiety. Uh, that goes along with debilitative and facilitative thoughts, but basically all it's saying is um, athletes' beliefs about whether they have control over goal attainment or their ability to cope with performance stretch stress in a particular setting will determine whether their view of anxiety is one of facilitative or debilitative appraisal. So um, if they have a strong locus of control, uh, they will be able to have more of a facilitative appraisal. If they think they can do something, they're more likely to do it. Now effect, positive or negative mood or emotion states affect appraisals, positive effect elicits facilitative appraisal of anxiety, um, and negative effect elicits debilitative. Surprise, surprise. An athlete's emotional responses experienced a, a, a re, as a result of their facilitative or debilitative appraisals that determine the impact such appraisals have on performance. Um We talked about the theory of attentional style. I just have a couple more things here. So um, cue utilization model, that is something we didn't talk about. Um, That is Easterbrook, 1959. Athletes experience an unhelpful influx of information when arousal is relatively low, but the attentional focus of athletes is narrowed as arousal begins to increase. So as I get more energetic and more energetic, my, uh, my um, f- attentional focus um, is going to start to uh, narrow, and, and I'm not going to be able to pay attention to many things. Uh, now, this is advantageous as they become better able to focus on relevant cues, so it's all about cues um, in this, but they may also hit the threshold where they are unable to focus on important factors, at which point... Heightened arousal becomes uh, maladaptive. So once again, you get too aroused, it becomes bad. Theories of motivation illustrate the significance of fostering positive relationships, focusing on uncontrollable factors, and giving athletes the tools they need to succeed. That's what all of these are about. Um talked about the trans-theoretical model of behavior change, which is Prochaska and DiClemente. Um, and, you know, the termination stage is rarely reached. and has received less attention and, and research because of that. All right, we are going to go, we're going to fly through chapter three uh, because there's not too many notes on it, and... Uh, We have one flashcard. That flashcard is performance. (laughs) Chapter three's flashcard is performance. The execution of a skill at a specific time and in a specific situation. That is chapter three's big thing. Now, a couple things to talk about. First off, skill acquisition represents how various forms of practice or manipulations of the practice environment influence attainment of motor skills. Motor learning is defined as the permanent change in motor performance as a result of practice or experience. Schema theory. This is Schmidt 1975. This is an important one. Yeah, Also known as top-down theory, each specific motor skill has a cognitive representation that is stored in the central nervous system. Skill is stored in memory and then retrieved perform. Generalized motor programs have both invariant features and parameters. Invariant features are the stable aspects of the skill performance, uh, skill performance that remain constant from one performance to the next. Parameters are the aspects of skill that can be modified to meet the demands of the current task performance. Now dynamical systems theory this is called bottom-up theory as well. It's David's Glazier Araujo, Bartlett in 2003, and Newell in 1989 is what it looks like. And it relies less on, contr- on centrally generated motor commands and proposes that movements are self-organized based on the interaction of personal characteristics as well as task and environmental demands. Um, so in other words... Schema theory is saying my brain it hits my brain and goes somewhere and goes through the body. Bottom up theory is saying something different. It's saying it's more through the motors. Um, so it would be the body reacting, uh, the body controlling the mind's reaction. Uh, kind of interesting. Now, Fitz and Posner have a three stage model. One. Cognitive stage, what should I do? When do I do it? How do I do it? Individuals attempt to understand the movement components necessary to have a successful execution of the skill. Two, associative stage, refining and adapting, um, where specific changes to performance and increased stability of the movement pattern. Then finally, autonomous stage, that's the third, um, skill becomes relatively automatic, or uh, more specifically, learners use minimal amounts of attention to perform the skill. This is building intensity uh, pressure with said skill. All right, um, we just talked about performance. Um, Watch performance over a period of trials to minimize the influence of any outlying performances. During skill acquisition, learners should show improvement, become more consistent, and adapt to changing performance demands. And then, also in performance, got to assess performance trials through retention and transfer tests. A retention test is used to assess the permanence of the motor skill. More specifically, it determines how much information has been retained for. Following practice. Transfer tests are going to assess the degree to which the skill is adaptive. Lady, be quiet. Um, Assess the degree to which the skill is adaptable to differing performance contexts. So we've learned a skill. Can we use it in this place, this place, this place, uh, this other place? Um, So that's, that's interesting. Next, constrained action hypothesis. This hypothesis states that using an internal focus disrupts performance by encouraging constant control of motor processes that should normally occur at a more automatic level. Um, So external focus is where an out of sorts athlete should go instead of focusing on wrist movement or swing or focusing on the ball, Um, really focusing on, Um, Oh, instead of focusing on wrist movement of a swing, focus on the ball or focus on something outside of that, right? A task intrinsic feedback comes as a natural result of performing the skill. Augmented feedback comes from a coach or video. And KP, knowledge of performance. KR is knowledge of results. Augmented feedback is divided into those two, knowledge of performance and knowledge of results. That's um, how that works. Now, one limitation to augmented feedback is that it can produce dependency on a coach or something like that. And then bandwidth frequency is feedback, which is given on a predetermined bandwidth of acceptable performance error. SC is self-controlled feedback and that would be stuff that I give to myself. Now, um, one more thing about limitations to augmented feedback is that coaches or mental performance coaches shouldn't provide feedback too frequently because then that can lead to uh, that dependency that we don't want to see. All right, so that was chapter two and chapter three notes and um, no cards. We'll be back for chapter four and chapter five tomorrow. Peace.